It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to New Scientist Weekly, the podcast that brings you the week's must-know news in science. I'm Rowan Hooper. I'm our podcast editor. And I'm Kat Delange. I'm our features editor. We've got a great show this week. Coming up, we have Katrina Pollock. She's a vaccine scientist from Imperial College London. And also joining us on the show this week is Stuart Clark, a new scientist, consultant and science writer. Hi, Kat. Hi, Stuart. Hi. Hi, Kat. Stu is going to be telling us about why the expansion of the universe is now out of kilter with Einstein's theories and why that's a big problem. We'll also be hearing about the first sample return mission to the moon in 40 odd years. That's just launched this week. And we have a wonderful life form of the week for you. I think you're yeah, going to have to convince me about that one. Uh, but before we get into it, we have to tell you about a special Black Friday deal. Yes, for a very limited time, you can get an annual subscription to New Scientist for just £99 with this Black Friday deal. Uh, that's the equivalent of giving you an extra 57% off the usual subscription price. And we've got similar pricing across all regions. So wherever you are in the world, we've got a deal for you. And it's on gift subscriptions too. So if you are looking for the perfect present for a friend or loved one this Christmas, look no further than a subscription to New Scientist. 365 days of science and discovery for just £99. To take advantage of this fabulous offer, just visit newscientist.com slash pod 99. But hurry, the offer closes on the 5th of December. Yes, that's newscientist.com slash pod 99. And you could easily give the best present of the year to someone with this offer. But we start with the latest vaccine news. Last week, we were celebrating having two really encouraging results from brand new mRNA vaccines. And we've also had results in from the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine and the Russian Sputnik V vaccine, both of which are the more traditional adenovirus vaccines. So those should be a lot cheaper. Yeah, to talk about this, we're joined by Katrina Pollock. She's Principal Investigator for the COVID vaccine trials at Imperial College London. And she's also working on the Oxford vaccine trials. Uh, Kat, you must have been working nonstop recently, since you came on the show in March, actually. Yes, absolutely. It's It's been uh, a huge amount of work and um, a very interesting time in terms of research. And it has been very encouraging to start to see this efficacy data being reported. Um, Kat, it's really exciting to have you here um, on the pod because we've got so many questions about the vaccines. And one question that people keep asking me is, when are we actually going to have a vaccine? And, you know, is life then going to go back to normal at some point early next year? Or that's what people are saying. Is that how realistic is that? The recent efficacy data is definitely a step in the right direction. 
And I think it, it means that we do have a disease that is modifiable with a vaccine. And that's a very important message to get across. Uh, and, and if we think of um, uh, different uh, viral pandemics, hepatitis C or HIV, where we've not been able to develop a vaccine, we've had to have other tools in order to manage um, infection, disease and transmission. And it's much more difficult without a vaccine. So I think there is hope that we will move towards um, normality, but it's going to take time. We're working very hard behind the scenes to uh, have uh, the ability in this country to roll out the vaccines when they become available. Uh, and then it's going to be a question of, of how we do that, um, immunising the most vulnerable, first of all. What do we know so far about how long any immunity will last us? When, when are we going to find that out? Vaccines tend to piggyback on the natural paradigms of immunity. And in order to answer that question, we also need to know a lot more about uh, coronavirus-specific immunity and the SARS-CoV-2-specific immunity. Uh, and this is particularly a, a question because we know from previous coronaviruses, immunity does wane and um, particularly after two to three years becomes clinically significant. Uh, so we need to follow up people who've had natural infection to know how long their immunity lasts. Vaccines uh, work in a slightly different way. They program the immune system in a slightly different way. And there may be some that are better at uh, invoking long-lasting immunity than others. And again, it's uh, only time will tell. And, and it's very important that once we start immunising people, we do measure the immunity and we follow it up long term so that we can plan for that strategy of boosting the immune response if we need to do so. Another thing I've been wondering about is whether the vaccine is really going to work on older people and vulnerable groups. So you talked about vaccinating them first. How much information do we have about that so far? Uh, so far, um, there's been a lot of data, um, uh, phase two data coming from the various different vaccines that are being developed to suggest that we are getting immune responses in older people that are similar to what we're seeing in younger people. So that's encouraging. What we don't know is how those uh, immune responses translate into real world protection. That is something that we need to continue to monitor. However, the efficacy data does suggest that those immune correlates of protection will be definable and that actually if you produce an immune response to the vaccine, that will confer some protection. And so the, the, the endpoints for the trials, they're really looking at whether the vaccines prevent um, people from getting ill. Do we know if the vaccines will stop people from actually spreading the virus if they catch it and perhaps don't become ill so people might become asymptomatic and, and, and keep transmitting the virus? The data that we're getting so far, and it's still quite limited, a lot of it has not been published yet, that data suggests that the vaccines are modifying the disease process in people who've had the vaccine and potentially preventing severe disease. And, and that's good news. But we don't know yet how those vaccines are uh, working in terms of people getting infected or in terms of transmission. And that is something that we will need to monitor if vaccines are rolled out, um, because it will become uh, very important in, in terms of continuing to prevent uh, disease in vulnerable people. Kat, with the AstraZeneca-Oxford vaccine, we had this weird result where the vaccine was basically accidentally given with a, a lower first dose 
and then it seems to have performed better. Um, can we talk about that, why that might be? Yes, this is an interesting result, and I don't think we know enough about it yet. Uh, and I think this question about the lower first dose and, and whether that is a, a true mechanism is is important to understand and and to think about why that might be. And there's a, a couple of things that we might consider. So uh, given an, it's an adenoviral vector, we might think a, a little bit more about that and about how uh, that may affect the, the boosting of the response. Uh, and also the, the other interesting thing about vaccines is that they seem to have um, a Goldilocks effect in terms of dosing. So the Goldilocks effect means that you want to give just enough to get the maximum response. If you give too little, it's not enough. And if you give too much, then the response is regulated in some way and, and in fact is lower than the peak. And uh, I think this is um, really needs to be researched more in, in, in terms of vaccines so that we can really get the most out of them. It costs a huge amount to develop them. And we really should be giving them at the right dose. And I think um, this result from Oxford AstraZeneca is interesting from that perspective and, and speaks to more widely the kind of research that we should be doing with vaccines. Yeah, so it's really fortuitous that they that we found this result. But d- does it mean they're going to have to repeat it like to get a bigger and better data set? Yeah, the regulators will have to look at that very carefully um, with the Oxford team to decide how that is utilised. It's it's not clear yet, but it certainly looks very interesting. And it is uh, so watch this space, I think. So everyone's desperate for a vaccine. We, we all are. The governments are. Can you explain a bit about emergency use authorization um, because people might worry that we're having to cut corners to get a vaccine out faster so how does this fast-tracked authorization work yeah this question of safety and, and time is something that comes up frequently so the regulatory bodies uh, in the UK and the US and across the world are safety bodies so they are there to look at the the safety of of the different agents that are being tested to prevent or treat um, SARS-CoV-2 infection. And that's what they will do. And under um, the uh, emergency use, they're allowed to do that in a way that could bring mass immunisation more quickly because it's needed. But that doesn't mean that they're cutting corners in terms of safety. What's happened in these trials is that uh, much of the work has been done in parallel and also prioritised because of the great need. So I think to some extent, we perhaps have done ourselves a bit of disservice by saying that it takes years and years and years to develop vaccines. Those years take into account the uh, sequential nature and the fact that the research is happening as part of many other research priorities. Whereas what we're seeing with these vaccines is that they've been prioritised because they are so needed. Uh, That means that um, the regulatory authorities look at them straight away. We've worked very closely with them. They turn things around very quickly. And um, we're also able to recruit to the trials more quickly. That means that we then create these huge safety databases, which are absolutely required to understand uh, the vaccines. If these, uh, some of these vaccines do get um, emergency use authorization, that could be in the next, you know, in the coming weeks, and potentially people could start getting vaccinated before the end of the year. Do you think that will happen? There is still uh, quite a lot of work to do to get that to happen. 
so all the work that I talked about just now in terms of submitting to the regulatory agencies, which the different vaccine developers will have to do, and then uh, all of the work that needs to be done to review the uh, large amounts of data that have been accumulated. And at the same time, we need to have planning on the clinical side to uh, deliver uh, these vaccines um, to the people who need them. All of that work is is uh, very much ongoing and um, people, again, are prioritising that work so that we can do it. I think it's possible, but uh, we, we don't know for sure that it's going to happen um, before Christmas. Um, but certainly um, we're working towards delivering it as quickly as possible. Um, Kat, about Christmas, you know, we've got a relaxation of, of social distancing rules in the UK coming up. In the US right now, it's Thanksgiving and there's, you know, huge mixture going on there. Um, and lots of scientists are basically saying this is this is locking in a third wave. Um, what should we do? What should people do about this? We are caught between wanting to prevent transmission and also wanting to allow people to have some freedom socially. And I, I, I totally sympathise in many ways with, with the government having to make these very difficult decisions. I think we need to remain very cautious and um, to make decisions that protect um, vulnerable people. And we have to protect them in both ways. So if people are alone, we must think about uh, helping them and not leaving people lonely, particularly at Christmas time, but also preventing infection. And and this has been the conversation throughout um, the pandemic. And and until we move forward from it, it, there isn't an easy resolution but I would urge um, everybody to still remain vigilant um, over the Christmas period. Now it's time for Life Form of the Week, where we highlight an animal we're feeling the love for. Rowan, what have you got for us? Nematodes. Nematode worms, not an animal I feel overwhelming love for, I must say. Yeah, well, there's there's hundreds of thousands of species of nematode. Um, and until this week, my favourite factoid about them was that If you took away all the matter in the world apart from nematodes, you'd still be able to see the whole planet traced by ghostly threads of nematodes. There's 60 billion on me and on you and on you, Stu. You know, they're everywhere. They're in trees and mountains. They go into the deep crust of the planet. They're floating on the water. They're in animals. You know, so you could see them everywhere if you take away all other matter. Um, I'm kind of disgusted by the fact that I'm covered in nematode worms. Um, Also quite impressed. Yeah. Um, Okay, so that was your favourite factoid before this week. Uh, What is it? What is it now? Uh, Right. So there's one particular nematode worm that everyone's heard of called C. elegans or Senorabditis elegans. Um, It's probably the best understood animal on Earth. It was the first to get its genome sequenced. And it's still the only one to have its complete connectome sequenced. So the connectome being the complete diagram of all the neuronal connections in, yeah. in the organism. I actually, I've heard a lot about C. elegans in terms of uh, ageing. It's it's responsible for the fasting diets. I don't know if you... Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a manky little worm, <laughs> but it is responsible for so much of our understanding of biology and genetics. Yeah, so it's an absolute legend. But what we didn't know is it makes milk. What? <laughs> okay. Not actual milk. Not not mammalian milk, but it makes a secretion that's effectively milk that it feeds to its young, kind of. So you're going to tell me that nematodes nurse and wean their little baby worms? <laughs> well, 
some researchers have just noticed that when they lay the eggs, the hermaphrodite nematodes leave a sort of milk behind them after they've laid their eggs. Okay, so just reading this here, it says that the hermaphrodites were leaving brown smears of liquid behind them. (laughs) Is this brown smear what you're talking about when you say milk? Yeah, well, they, they say it should be called yolk milk. And the baby nematodes seem to feed on it when they hatch. And they, so they call this primitive lactation. I suppose there's no need to be marmalocentric about milk. Uh, uh, it makes sense that there's plenty of organisms that sort of make secretions to feed their young. Yeah, there's even a cockroach that um, does that, that feeds its young. Uh, but look, what's interesting about the, the milk production in C. elegans, and you've kind of alluded to this but with ageing, is that it's triggered by a biochemical pathway called the insulin-like signalling pathway, and that promotes ageing. So it seems that after it's laid its eggs, the animal breaks down its own body to make this yolk milk to feed its young. And the implication there is that this form of rapid ageing has been favoured by evolution, and then it, you know, it allows parents to support their young. Um, and the researchers say this means, in the worm at least, that ageing has a biological purpose. Time Out would like to tell you about a brilliant one-day live virtual event we're holding about the future, the future of the planet, of food and agriculture. Find out how science and technology is tackling hunger and obesity and safeguarding the future of our planet. We'll have talks, demos and interactive sessions with a lineup including Neil Stevens, who studies lab-grown meat, and Tilly Collins, who's making the case for loading up our plates with edible insects. Whether it's sustainable diets, robot farming, hacking your taste buds or gene editing livestock, we have everything you need to know about the future of food. Yeah, there's also a session on cheese. Uh, The live event is on Saturday 28th of November from 10 till 5. Uh, And that might be in the past by the time you hear this, but all the talks are going to be available to watch again for six months. So to get your ticket, visit newscientist.com slash events. Now, there's a big problem with our understanding of the universe. Stuart Clark is a new scientist consultant and writer. And Stu, you've done a piece this week outlining the problem. So what is wrong? Yeah, it's a biggie cat, actually. Um, I mean, yeah, no pun intended when we're talking about the universe. Um, The problem is all to do with um, the difference in how we measure the expansion rate of the universe and the value that we predict from our best description of the universe so far, which is called uh, the standard model. In cosmology, they pretty much thought they had the universe banged to rights. And they thought that the the standard model of cosmology, which has as its foundation stone Einstein's general relativity, and then loads on top of that all the ingredients of the universe, like the ordinary matter, the dark matter and the dark energy and then you sort of crank that through the mathematics and you get the description of the universe more or less as we see around us today so they feel it's 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 solid and almost certainly correct but now we've got this this big problem with it whilst you would always expect some level of discrepancy you would usually then expect that the errors in your methods um, allow those values to overlap in the end what's happening here in this problem that we call the hubble tension is that the two camps the observers and the theoreticians if you like um, are now very certain about their values and they they simply don't tally up 
it's as if the standard model is describing a slightly different universe than the one we're actually living in. Wow. So the the tension, this Hubble tension, uh, as you say, it comes because there's a discrepancy in the values that have been assigned to it, the discrepancy in the, the observations of the speed of the expansion of the universe and, and what we expect. Yes. Yeah, so in the standard model, you decide the parameters of the standard model. So the amount of dark matter, the amount of dark energy, the amount of ordinary matter, those kinds of things. Um, you decide that by uh, taking the observations of the cosmic microwave background radiation, which is the earliest light that we can see. Um, it comes, it was released into the universe uh, just about 400,000 years after the Big Bang. And it contains a pattern of temperature fluctuations that reflect the distribution of matter across the universe at that time. And so you use the standard model and you tweak all the, the, the quantities of the dark matter and the dark energy to reproduce that, that fluctuation pattern in the cosmic microwave background radiation. And the, then you allow gravity, as described by general relativity, to sort of um, run through the next 13 billion um, years for you to tell you what the distribution of matter and the expansion rate of the universe should be today. And you compare that with observations. And that's where the discrepancy in the Hubble constant comes from. It's measured in um, kilometers per second per megaparsec. So for every million parsecs of space, uh, you have a speed at which the universe is, is expanding. And when you predict it from the standard model, you get about uh, 68 or so kilometers per second per megaparsec. Um, when you go and measure it, in today's universe, however, you get 73 to 74 kilometers per second per megaparsec. Now, it's mind-blowing to me that you, you can get that close, actually. I mean, this it means the standard model is a major triumph, however you cut it. But we're doing science here, so we want those to be precisely the same. And that's where the problem lies. You said they thought they had it pretty much sewn up and you mentioned dark matter and dark energy and it's a bit weird to say they've got things sewn up when those two things were kind of invented by physicists to to account for what we see. But can't we can we invent something else? Can they invent yeah. something else to, to you know to to make up this gap, this discrepancy? It's difficult to invent anything else actually, because the fundamental things that sit in the universe are, are matter and energy, and you've already invented two generic forms of that. <laughs> so, so what you could also try to do is, is well, perhaps it this tells us something about its behaviour of the dark matter and dark energy that it's not quite as simple as we thought it was. But every time the uh, so the physicists that I talked to for the piece um, looked into this. The trouble that they found is that as soon as they start tinkering um, with the dark matter and the dark energy, then you might be able to solve the Hubble tension, but you put tensions elsewhere in what the standard model predicts. So the amount of galaxy clustering on certain scales and, and things like that. And so actually trying to find um, a solution to this problem is proving much harder than the cosmologists first thought. So it, we, we could be looking at um, a, a step change in our understanding. 
going beyond Einstein's general relativity. And obviously, it wouldn't be the first time, would it? You've just written a book, Stu, haven't you? Beneath the Night, How Stars Have Shaped the History of Humankind. And that basically talks about where we've had these step changes and having to rethink things completely over over history. Yes, it's a very interesting moment to be living through because we feel as if we've pretty much understood the universe, as we've said, with the standard model. But maybe not. Maybe we really do have to to look at general relativity again and try to find a better description of gravity on these large cosmic scales. And those kinds of revolutions or step changes, however you want to characterize them, you know, have always been present throughout human history. But so too has the belief that we had pretty much understood everything. Uh, So there's no time really in history as I discovered while writing the book, that we didn't think we we pretty much understood everything. And it was just a few little details. And then, you know, we've just the models, the ideas that we have have just completely fallen, fallen apart, really. Not only has that been sort of philosophically and scientifically interesting, it's also completely changed the way that in a cultural sense, we think of our place in the universe and that we look at the night sky as well. And so that's something that I wanted to um, to capture in, in this particular book, is that you know our place in the universe is not just the purview of the astronomers and the scientists, but everyone has their own personal thoughts about what it feels like to stand out um, underneath this big, dark starry night and know that you're in the middle of a gigantic universe and now it's time for climate hope or doom where we discuss some of the latest news to do with climate change and decide how full or empty we think the glass is looking right now yeah uh, a couple of things to mention this week Uh, let's start with the appointment of john kerry as joe biden's special presidential envoy for climate Uh, That's a new position embedded on the US National Security Council. Mm, Yeah, it's been called the climate czar position. Yeah, Kerry tweeted, um, America will soon have a government that treats the climate crisis as the urgent national security threat it is. John Kerry was Secretary of State in 2016, and it was him who signed the Paris Climate Agreement on behalf of the United States. Uh, It might be him that re-signs the agreement again in January. I mean, this is... A massive relief, I think, isn't it? It's good news. Oh, yeah, it it is. I mean, there's still a massive job to do. Uh, a lot of people are still sort of, you know, they're not, they're going to wait and see, I think. Uh, but Kerry is incredibly well connected. He also just gave a speech saying that the Paris Agreement alone is not enough. Uh, and that's what uh, new scientists, we've been saying ever since that happened, it's not enough. Um, but it's kind of amazing to have someone in that position say it. Um, and here's a clip that he tweeted him talking. At the global meeting in Glasgow one year from now, all nations must raise ambition together or we will all fail together. Incredible. And he has the diplomatic skills. So it's pretty encouraging overall that Biden has has made climate such a big part of the new White House. Yeah. And the White House is also appointing a climate policy coordinator, uh, another new high level position. Okay, so what about the UK? What's the UK's climate plan looking like? 
Yeah. So the UK launched its plan for what the government has called the Green Industrial Revolution. Uh, there's money to help decarbonize transport um, and heavy industry and to help green housing. Um, but there's nothing about agriculture or forestry, which is kind of crazy, really, given how important they are to carbon emissions. That is concerning. And when you dig into it, it turns out that only four, only four billion pounds um, is actually new money. Yeah, the total funding is 12 billion. But uh, um, yeah, as you say, most of it's already been allocated. But, you know, we'll say it's a step. It's a good step. And we need lots of those. So are we pretty climate hopey this week? (laughs) I think we have to be a bit climate hopey. Yeah. And now it's time to catch up on uh, lunar civilization news. And for this, we turn to our space correspondents, Leia Crane and Donna Liu. Over to you two. Thanks, Rowan. Uh, Hello from Chicago. This is Leia. Hi from Brisbane. It's Donna. So let's get right into it. The big news now is that we've just had the launch of the first sample return to the mission in more than 40 years, right? Yeah. So it's a a Chinese mission, the Chang'e 5 spacecraft, which launched uh, early on Tuesday morning uh, Beijing time. It's aiming to collect hopefully at least two kilograms of lunar dust and debris from the northern region of the Oceanus Procellarum, which is a previously unvisited area on the near side of the moon. Two kilograms is, is is quite a lot, isn't it? The last sample return mission, I believe, was in 1976 by the Soviet Union's Luna 24 probe, which brought back about 170 grams. Yeah, it's it's certainly a lot more than the Soviets brought back, but not quite as much as the, the six Apollo missions, um, which were carried out between 1969 and 1972, and they brought back a total of 382 kilograms of lunar rocks. Well, you know, that mission had humans and these ones didn't. Can you tell us a little bit about that landing site that Chang'e 5 is headed for and what we know about the area and what that sample might end up containing? Yeah, so the the CNSA, the China National Space Administration, has picked a fairly large potential landing area near Mons Rumka, which is a 1,300-metre-high volcanic uh, formation. And the landing site itself covers two different geological areas. To the west, uh, the basalts, these are rocks that are formed when lava cools rapidly. The basalts seem to resemble those that were sampled in the Apollo missions in that um, they seem to be older. So in the Apollo missions, the rocks retrieved uh, are all older than about 3.1 billion years. And Chang'e 5 is aiming to land east of Mons Rumke in an area that contains what appears to be much younger rock. Uh, so that's in the order of 1.2 to 2 billion years old. One of my favorite things about, about this mission is that landing craft and how it's going to gather the samples. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So so after Chang'e 5 reaches lunar orbit, essentially what happens is that the um, lander and the ascent stage of the spacecraft will, will separate from the main spacecraft uh, so that it can touch down on the moon. And the lander's job itself is to, to drill and collect a core of regolith, which is uh, loose soil and broken rocks uh, around two metres deep. Uh, the lander also has a robotic arm, which will scoop up some shallow soils on the surface. And to help it assess the, I guess, the makeup of the soil and the layers beneath it, the lander has ground penetrating radar, it, basically, which will help ensure that it's not trying to drill down into solid bedrock um, beneath it. Great. And it's always 
really amazing when we can get samples from the surface and beneath the surface. I know yeah, that definitely. really helps us understand sort of the context of the samples that we're getting and and a wider area of geological time. But I know that we can't do that study until those samples get back to Earth. So when is that happening? So the the entire mission from go to woe from launch to return is expected to take around twenty three days. The thing is that unlike uh, Chang'e four, which landed uh, on the far side of the moon in in January last year in twenty nineteen, Chang'e five isn't equipped with heating units to help it weather um, the lunar night, which is extremely cold. So the sampling needs to take place during a single lunar day, which is the equivalent of about 14 Earth days. Once Chang'e 5 completes its surface operations, the samples will be stored in its ascent stage, which will lift off from the moon uh, and then make contact with the orbiter again. And when the spacecraft is in lunar orbit, the samples will get transferred from the ascent stage to a re-entry capsule for, for return to Earth. And the actual date that it's supposed to land, that it's expected to land um, on Earth is in mid-December, I think 16th or 17th of December they're hoping for. Uh, somewhere in in Mongolia. So, what can we expect to learn? I know that that we can expect we'll learn a lot about the evolution of the moon and perhaps its formation. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So. If the samples are actually as young as we we think they are, um, if the analyses show that they are 2 billion years or younger, what that would shed light on is what happened on the moon at a time when it was cooling down. We have quite a big gap uh, in the moon's history because the, the samples that were retrieved from the Apollo and lunar missions are much older. What what these rocks uh, from, from the Chang'e 5 mission will also do is help researchers better calibrate the age of surfaces on the moon based on the density of impact craters. So when you look at the moon, you know, with the naked eye, you can see the impact craters on its surface. And, and generally speaking, older surfaces tend to have bigger and larger craters than younger surfaces. If we can tie an absolute age in the one to two billion year range to crater density, that would actually help for mapping on other planetary bodies, essentially. It seems like this mission is is quite complicated. I know I've seen a couple people saying that it might actually be more complicated than necessary. You were talking about the sample being transferred between all of these different stages. And it seems like the Chinese have been really very impressive in the lunar missions so far. Yeah, they, they've been very systematic about it. So Chang'e 5 is part of a four-phase lunar exploration program run by the Chinese government, and it's probably a step in preparation for sending Chinese astronauts um, or taikonauts to the moon in future, uh, maybe around 2030. And, you know, on the point of, of the mission architecture being perhaps more complicated than seems necessary, I guess that's kind of what you'd expect if they're in the process of testing systems or technology for a future human mission. So as you said, Chang'e 5 is part of this four-phase plan, and it is phase three. And next up, which is also still part of phase three, is Chang'e 6, which is planned for launch in 2023 or 2024. Then we can move on to phase four, which will be exploration at the south pole of the moon, which is really an exciting location and a lot of different agencies, particularly NASA, are talking about it as a location for human exploration and maybe a place for a future lunar base. 
Yeah, I think it's going to be a very exciting couple of decades ahead. Definitely. We're definitely exploring the moon in ways that we haven't been able to do before, and hopefully we'll be sending humans there soon. Thanks so much, Donna, and now we'll go back to Rowan in London. Thanks. That's all for this week. Thanks for joining us, our special guests, Stuart Clark and Katrina Pollock, and thanks to you for listening. One other thing to mention, in this week's mag, we've got some fantastic longer reads, a feature on a bid to free orca from captivity, and we also look at the scientists who are on the hunt for new viruses as they spill over from animals. Yeah, that's it. Uh, Do remember that going to newscientist.com slash pod 99 gives you a special Black Friday discount. Uh, It does last longer than just Friday, but it is time limited, so do get on it. newscientist.com slash pod 99. And do spread the word about our show. Goodbye for now and take care. Bye. This podcast is produced by Oli Giyu Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.